How is everyone this morning? Good, good. Well, I want to welcome you. My name is Adam Young, and I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church, and I want to welcome you to week one of a new series that we're starting this week called The Grand Narrative. Now, I don't know if you have uh, ever really thought about this, um, but, but I want to just start by asking a question. Have you ever considered how important stories are to our lives? Now, just think about it for a minute, how important stories are to our lives. Now, not just for entertainment's sake. I mean, I know we all can appreciate a good movie or um, uh, binge-watching a good show on Netflix, but um, stories are integral to our lives. When our kids are little, we read them stories frequently. Uh, And it's not just to quickly entertain them uh, or to get them to be sleepy for bedtime, though those are added benefits. We read stories because it, it captures a child's imagination and it helps it to grow. Because we're, we're trying to help our kids realize that there's more to this world than just what their tiny little experience uh, has come to understand. Uh, you and I read stories, or maybe if you're not a reader, some of you might not be, so maybe you can plug in a movie there, though. Uh, I, maybe, I'm not sure, that might be a cheap substitute. But, but if you want to, we'll do movies. Um, but we read books because it takes us to another world. Uh, whether you like science uh, fiction, if you like fantasy, if you like historical uh, novels, whatever it is that, that you appreciate or enjoy, um, reading or it, being a part of a story helps to capture us into another world uh, for us to imagine what life may be like uh, in other places or in other time frames. Uh, We use stories to illustrate and teach lessons, maybe lessons we have learned, or lessons that we need to learn, or lessons that other people need to learn. And we use stories to help make that happen. That's what our culture does. Cultures tell stories, and that's how we institute and how we teach and, uh, and, and how we train people to have certain ethics and morals is a lot of times in culture we use stories. We even talk about our own lives as though they are a story. And you've probably used this kind of idea or language before where maybe, maybe one, something in your life is changing and you might talk it about the closing of one chapter and, and starting a new chapter in life. Uh, we talk about things how like you can't always control, you can't control how your story begins, but you can influence or control as much as possible where your story is headed. We love to use stories to communicate this idea of what life is like and, and how worldviews work. In a lot of ways, a worldview, which is just a way of seeing your life, it's sort of uh, a picture of what your story looks like, a worldview or a story in a lot of ways, is a lot like a puzzle. In a puzzle, you you just have a a whole mixture of pieces that when they all fit together, in theory, they all fit together and create one big picture. One, it should be a coherent picture of, of what the world looks like and what your life looks like. And hopefully, you have start to figure out the pieces of your life and how those fit together. But in a lot of ways, a worldview is like a puzzle and how these different pieces fit together. Now, if we're honest, I think if most of us were to be asked about what does your Christian worldview look like, this is what I would imagine most of our worldviews look like. 
It's a pile of pieces that in theory should all fit together. And there's some pieces that we know really well, right? Like, oh, here's Jesus. Like in, in my worldview, in my Christian story, I, I, know, I know that piece. I'm familiar with this one. Some of the other pieces, oh, here's the Bible, which I kind of know, but I at least know it goes into my worldview, into my puzzle. But then there's other things that sometimes we might not know, like here's Moses and here's Abraham. Well, I'm familiar that those pieces exist. I don't know exactly how they fit into the big picture. And then there's other things that we, we pick up and we're like, oh, thou shalt not murder. Well, that fits into what I think my worldview should be, so that one makes sense. Here's another one, homosexuality. I don't, I don't know how this fits. Is that, is that supposed to be a good puzzle piece or a bad puzzle piece? And, and, and we have this pile of pieces that, when put together in theory, should put together a picture of our lives, but sometimes I think we struggle in putting all of those pieces together. And in this series, we are taking a look at the pieces that make up God's story, as we find in the Bible, and taking a look at how all of these pieces fit together. Now, here's what we're not going to do in this series. What we're not going to do in this series is examine every little puzzle piece. I mean, that's a lifetime worth of discussion and study and reading. As a matter of fact, what we usually do on a Sunday morning in many ways is we look at different puzzle pieces. You know, earlier, uh, several months ago, late last year, we did a series called InstaFam. And really, those were a handful of pieces that fit together that talk about family and relationships and marriage and parenting. And we do different series and different messages that maybe look at just one piece uh, that should fit into our world and our worldview and into our stories. But in this series, what we're not doing is we're not looking at the individual pieces. In this series, what we're doing is we're taking a look at the whole picture. We're, we're taking a look at how everything should fit together so that when we encounter a, a, a new piece, when we encounter a new story or a new teaching or a new commandment, one of those you should do this in the Bibles, or one of those you shouldn't do this, we know how it fits into the big picture. And so in this series, we're going to cover the entire Bible and the entire grand narrative, the story God is telling in seven weeks. We're going to do it in creation, fall, covenant, kingdom, savior, church, new creation. We're going to go on a journey, a seven-week journey from the beginning of beginnings to the end. And I think as we paint the picture of the, the big picture, that God is, the story God is telling, the picture God is painting, it will help us put all the little pieces together. Uh, there's this uh, Scottish philosopher um, who's taught at a number of universities, Vanderbilt, he taught at um, Yale, he taught at Boston, he taught at Notre Dame. Uh, his, his name um, is Alistair uh, McIntyre, uh, and, and he is a professor of moral philosophy, of political philosophy, and he's really well known for his studying and his writing on the history of philosophy. Uh, and he wrote a book uh, called After Virtue, 
And he makes this statement in his book, thinking about uh, moral philosophy and how we live our lives. And he says this. He says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? And that's what we're doing in this series, is we're going to look at God's grand story and how we fit into that story and how the different pieces all scattered throughout the Bible fit together. And as we begin our journey today, we're going to begin the story in the beginning of beginnings. We're going to do that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So if you brought your Bibles, I'd love to invite you to open them up to Genesis chapter 1. It's at the beginning, uh, so it should be fairly easy to find. But if you want to make it really easy, open up your Bible app, go to Element Church in the events page, and you can follow along with the scriptures we're going to cover today. And so we're going to start in the beginning of beginnings here. Genesis 1-1, the first sentence, the first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now there's a couple things that I want to highlight and I want to point out. Uh, First of all, um, the purpose of Genesis is to not give us a scientific understanding of the how and the when. As Cameron taught last week, uh, faith and science are not antithetical to one another. As a matter of fact, the Bible pushes and challenges and encourages us all to grow in knowledge and in wisdom. As Cameron shared last week, science has its origins in the Christian faith. And he walked through a historical, a quick historical timeline of how science was birthed out of the Christian faith. And he, he talked about how, how God encourages us to, to study and explore further. And if you weren't here last week, you missed out. And you should go to our website this week. Uh, and there you can listen to the sermon What we're not trying to answer is the how and the when, but the who. And here's what I want to do. I want to make some observations about this sentence. It seems like a really simple sentence. It seems like something that we could read and just move on. If you've grown up in church or you've been around uh, church or Christians or the Bible for very long, you you probably haven't really even thought about this verse much in a long time because it seems so simple. But I want us to talk about the real implications of this sentence. In the beginning, God created. God created. Because this is the beginning of our story. This is the foundation that's being set for the opening scenes of this grand narrative that God's about to tell. And I want us to make some observations about the significance of what it means and how it relates to our lives, our worldview, our stories. And here's the first thing that I want to point out, is that our story, the story, begins with a person, not a thing. The great story begins with a person, not a thing. A personal God Again, this may seem like for a moment something that's really obvious and simple, but it has profound implications for our story. And here's why, because of our second point. This story, 
is about God. This story is not about you. There's no doubt you play a role in the story. We're going to get there. There's no, there's no doubt that this story has life-altering, eternal implications that, that grab a hold of you and your heart, that help you to define and understand your story. But ultimately, this story isn't about you. You're not the main character. Some of you know that uh, I'm an instructor at Colorado Christian University, and I teach a number of different courses uh, on the Bible, mostly focused on the New Testament. Um, But I teach one particular course, which uh, is just an introduction course that almost every student at uh, CCU has to take, and it's just introduction to the Bible. I mean, you know, if you're going to pay private school prices for a Christian college education. They're going to make you take some classes on the Bible. That's just the way it works. And so I have tons of like nursing students and engineering students and math students and English students and uh, who didn't go because they were looking to get a degree in biblical studies, but nonetheless, they're in my class. And uh, there's one particular textbook that uh, when I first came on to CCU, I was required to use uh, until I threw a big enough fit. Uh, because in the introduction to this book, it's just a, a book that, other, other than one sentence in the whole book, it's actually a decent book, um, that, that just covers the, the, whole, the whole story of the Bible, and it, and it talks about different people and events and places and things like that. Um, but there's one sentence in the introduction of the Bible, uh, of this book about the Bible, uh, in talking about how, how the Bible is, is meant to capture our attention, the Bible is God's story meant to tie, to tie into our story. Um, ultimately, the Bible is there to teach us about God so that we can come to know him. And then it makes this statement in the textbook and says, in light of, because God's trying to do these things through the Bible in your life, that the Bible is all about you. And when I read that sentence, I said, I won't teach this course with this textbook because the Bible's not about me, and it's not about you. We are not the main characters of this story. This story begins with a person, because this story is about God. Well, I meant to go one slide, I went two slides. So here's number three and four. Number three, God is distinct from all creation. And thinking about the implications of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It teaches us this fundamental principle and idea that God is distinct from everything else. Creator is distinct from creation. When we talk about what goes wrong in our world, we'll talk a little bit about that next week, The Apostle Paul, in his letter uh, to the church in Rome in the first century, described that one of the biggest problems come when we as people elevate creation into the place of creator. Regardless of what it is, something we make with our hands, whether it's an idol of wood or gold, whether it's an idea, whether it's a goal or a pursuit of something like success or fame or money, or whether it's a person your spouse, your children, or yourself, when we place anything of creation 
into the place of the Creator, things go terribly wrong. God is distinct from all creation. And number four, everything belongs to God. He made it. He owns it. He made it. He has the right, the sole right to declare why it was made and the purpose for which he created and designed it. God is distinct from creation and God owns everything and that includes you. Now, as Americans, we do not like that idea. We have built our worldview, so much of of the pieces of, of the puzzle that we've been told that belong in our puzzle, in our big picture, in our worldview, is that no one owns you. You are free. And while God, while God has in his sovereign, creative wisdom given freedom to his creatures, we in fact are not free because we owe him everything. Every bit of honor and allegiance is due Him because unlike everything else in this world and everything else we experience, He is distinct from all creation. Now, as we talk about this story, as we begin to open up the pages of this grand narrative, we cannot skip this idea. Because what we would love to do is we'd love to, let's just jump into the part of the story uh, where it gets really interesting or really good or where, where all of a sudden we show up on the scene. I, 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 let's just skip to where I show up. I, I want to see my part in it. But this is foundational to the entire story, to the entire grand narrative. So many times when we want to talk about God or we want to talk about this great story, we start with Jesus and we'll get there and five weeks and we'll talk about why he belongs at the center of the story but so many times we talk we start with the discussion on Jesus in the first century Paul who is arguably the greatest missionary the world has ever known a guy who started off hating Jesus so much that he was willing to imprison and persecute and even authorize the murder of those who claimed to follow Jesus until he met Jesus himself face to face one day. And he went from being the greatest destroyer of the church to its greatest builder. He begins taking the story of God, this grand narrative, to all parts throughout the Roman Empire. And if you're going to walk around and preach and teach and establish churches in all these major cities in the Roman Empire, you can't ignore Athens. I mean, if you're going to start in a major city outside of Rome itself, Athens is pretty important. And so in Acts chapter 17, Paul shows up on the scene in Athens. And though it is not quite to the same degree of glory that it once held, when it was controlled under the Greek Empire, even under the Roman Empire, it's still an incredibly important city of culture and thought. And so Paul makes his way to the place where all the philosophers and the wise men of the city like to gather and debate ideas. And this is how Paul shows up to begin describing this new story that he wants 
he wants his audience to get captured into. And I want you to notice where he starts his story. So we'll be in Acts chapter 17. We're going to start with Paul's beginning in Athens as he approaches. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as known, unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul shows up on the scene in Athens, and he doesn't start with, hey guys, a few years ago there was this cross outside of Jerusalem, and there was this man. Instead, Paul decides he's going to start at the beginning of the story. That he's going to go all the way back to creation. And notice the trajectory of Paul's discussion. That as we move along in this discussion, we get to the point that God who made the world and everything in it, and then... Ultimately, that he made man. And then above that, verse 27, that they should seek God. Because Paul understood the, the important aspect of this idea. That not only is God the creator of everything, that, that the, the cosmos is not just a succession of brute facts, but that it's telling a story, that it's a pot, a, the plot line of a grand story and that part of that is that it begins with a person, and this personal God created people. As we move into the story, we go back to Genesis 1, and as things have started to be created in this telling of the story to help us understand the foundation for your story and my story, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here's what I want you to understand this morning. We were created from communion for communion. God says, let us, as we'll discover later on in this story, is that God that we often think of as God the Father was not alone. God the Son, Jesus, was there. 
And God the Spirit was there as well. We were created from communion. Out of this personal relationship between God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we were created for communion. This is why we can't skip this part of the story. Because this story doesn't just try to tell us why things exist. It tries to tell us why we exist. That we were created from communion for communion. And then here's the beauty that I really want to land on today. Genesis 2.8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I want us to talk about this part of the story for just a minute. This part of the story known as Eden. And here's what we learn in the story. That Eden is the place where God dwells with his people in perfect harmony. I want you to think for a moment if you are familiar with this story. If you're familiar with different pieces of this story. Where else does God dwell with His people? Well, the next stage of the story in God dwelling with His people is the temple. And here's what's really cool about this story and with Eden. The Garden of Eden is in fact the first temple, and it's the very template that the future temple builders would use to create their structures. Eden is the first temple. It's designed to facilitate God dwelling in perfect harmony with his people. This is a core part of the story that you and I are created from communion for communion. We were created and designed to live in perfect harmony with God. As we look at how Eden was a temple, we're not going to run through every aspect, but I want to point out just a few things. And this at least helps put the pieces of the puzzle together. Maybe when you read further on in the Old Testament, when you start to read about the construction of the temple, or when you read about the construction of what's called the tabernacle. If, if you're not familiar with that part of the story, uh, many, many years away from this point, God will give instructions for His people to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle is just a portable temple. It was made of cloth because it, could, it needed to be folded up and packed away and carried because the Israelites, God's people, were on a journey. And so when he gives instructions for the tabernacle, it's just a portable temple. Later on, a, a formal structure, a permanent temple, will be built. But I want you to think about just a few things. We're not going to read all the passages that have to do uh, with this, but, I, but the model of Eden becomes a template for a temple or a tabernacle or the place where God would dwell with his people. In Genesis chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 27, we realize and read that both of them face east, that the opening to both the garden and the temple 
and the tabernacle are always to open up towards the east. Number two, uh, there's this really cool connection between precious stones and metal. So when we read about the Garden of Eden, what we read is that there's a river flowing through it that is full of gold and onyx. But then as we begin to read about the future tabernacle and temple, as, as the temple is being created, or as the tabernacle is being created, everything on the outside is made of wood. And then as you start to move inside and towards the middle of the tabernacle, things are then made out of bronze and then silver. And then when you get to the innermost part of the temple, the place where God's presence would dwell, everything was made of gold. And then God gave specific instructions for the priests when they created their garments to go in and to offer sacrifices, to offer offerings, and to to worship before God on behalf of the people, that their uniforms were supposed to be made of gold and onyx stones. It's this idea that as you enter into the center, you find these precious stones and metal, which is exactly how Eden is described. Next, what we learn in both Genesis and in the instructions for the tabernacle, is that the presence of God is guarded by angels. So if you read in the account of the Garden of Eden, God places cherubim or angels to guard the the presence of, of the garden. But then when we read about the tabernacle and the temple, God gives specific instructions that on the entrance, they're supposed to embroider angels and cherubim on the curtains that mark the entrance into his presence. And then in the Garden of Eden, we have something called the Tree of Life. But when you read about the temple and the tabernacle, God gives instructions that inside the tabernacle or the temple, they're supposed to place a lampstand. And then God begins to describe how to make the lampstand. And he uses language like like leaves and branches. He even calls the bulbs that hold the oil for the lamp um, almond blossoms. Because this lamp that gives light inside the temple, there's no electricity back then. The only way you can see is with a lamp. And he describes the lamp using the same kind of language that would use to be described that would be used to describe a tree. And then also in the Garden of Eden, we have the tree of knowledge. And what happens, what's the danger of partaking or touching the tree? Well, in the account in Eden we read, it brings judgment and death. And inside the tabernacle or the temple is what is called the Ark of the Covenant. And inside this ark, inside this chest, Things are stored like God's Word when God gives instructions for Moses to write these things down. Then they store them inside. And what happens if you were to touch the Ark of the Covenant? Well, God says there'll be judgment and there'll be death. I want you to look at the language that Genesis uses to describe the tree of knowledge. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But this is how God's word is described as well. The law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing in the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The Bible uses the same kind of language to describe the tree of knowledge as it does to describe God's truth and his word. A few more. So, as we're told the story of creation, as we're told this story that it happens on six days and then on the seventh day God takes a break from creation and later on God will create something called the Sabbath that's supposed to model creation, that you and I should work for six days and then on the seventh day we should take a day of rest and reflection and worship. And when God begins to give the instructions for the tabernacle and the temple, God uses a formula to do it. And this is how he uses the formula. And each time that instructions are given, we get this this formula that God says to Moses. And that happens seven times in the book of Exodus. As God's giving instructions for how to build this tabernacle. On the sixth day of creation is the day when God breathed life into Adam as a part of this story. It's on the sixth iteration of God says to Moses in this formula that God breathes life, his spirit, into people to empower them to make the tabernacle. On the seventh day, God rests. On the seventh day, we're told to rest And on the seventh iteration of this formula, when God gives his instructions for the tabernacle, God reminds his people of the importance of keeping Sabbath. And then here's the last one. This is the instructions given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Work and keep the garden. Later on, when a tabernacle is built and God institutes priests to monitor and to take care of it, he tells uh, his priest, he gives them instructions and said, you are to serve and to guard the tabernacle and its, and its grounds. Now, we translate those words that way because of how they communicate, the, the kind of nuances that it communicates. But in the original language, in, Hebrews, in Hebrew, the instructions to Adam to work and to keep And the instructions to the priests to serve and guard are the exact same words. Now we translate them differently, but they're the same words. God's instructions to Adam and God's instructions to the priests are the exact same. And here's why. The Garden of Eden is the first temple. The story begins with that we were created for communion from communion. That God created us out of the communion He had with God the Son and the Holy Spirit so that we could dwell in perfect harmony in His presence. We were created for communion. That's an integral part of this story. God desires communion and fellowship with us. And the rest of the story begins to describe what went wrong and how it's made right again. But you can't miss this. The story begins with God created. And it begins with this idea that we were created from communion for communion. 
Even the Garden of Eden itself was designed to be that place where people dwell in God's presence in perfect harmony. Something that later the builders of the tabernacle and temple would use as a template for how to build the temple. To design it around God's original design of us dwelling in perfect harmony in his presence. And as we continue on in this story, the story will begin to capture our imagination and capture us into the story. Because even though things go wrong, God's desire for communion with us never stops. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here together today. As we talk about your big picture, the big picture that you've painted for us, the picture that tells the story of who you are and your work in our world, and the story that tells about what you desire for us. God, as we begin to understand how this picture all fits together, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see how each of these little pieces in our lives, the ones that when they're by themselves, they don't make sense, they don't tell a story, but how they fit together. We can understand your story and how you have invited us to be a part of it. I want you to keep your eyes closed for just a minute. Obviously, we don't have access to the Garden of Eden anymore. We don't even have access to the old tabernacle or temple. But the beauty and the power of what Jesus did when he came was that he made the tabernacle and the temple obsolete. We're actually told of the story that when Jesus dies, that the great curtain inside the temple was torn in two. You see, that was the, that was the curtain that had the angels embroidered on it, that, that represented those guards who would protect the people from God's presence. Because a sinful people, it's deadly dangerous for us to enter into God's presence. But when Jesus came and died, he made the temple obsolete. We didn't have to go to a particular location anymore to be in God's presence. Paul, who we talked about earlier, who went from being the greatest destroyer of the church to the greatest builder of the church, in this dramatic, life-changing moment, would describe what happens because of Jesus and he would later teach other Christians this idea. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. We don't need a temple. Because Jesus has, right, has made right what went wrong so that we can be in God's presence and that His presence can now dwell in us. And then Paul says, don't you know you're not your own, you were bought at a price? See, God created us and He owns us. 
And as humans, we've rebelled. But to bring us back, Jesus paid the ultimate price. He gave up his life so that we could find true life. The the opportunity for you to be forgiven of your sins, to be ushered into God's presence once again, it's not a gift that came for free. We didn't have to pay it, but Jesus paid it. We were bought with a price. The, The price was the life of Jesus. And because of what he did, God's presence can now dwell in each one of us. We can now have communion with our creator once again. So my encouragement for all of us in this room and the challenge for all of us is to embrace Jesus for who he is and what he has done. To recognize the communion that we're able to have with him once again. To acknowledge that we were created from communion for communion. And we can stand and we can sing and we can celebrate in the presence of God today because of what Jesus has done. And so our invitation is for you to do just that. To sing, to celebrate, to rejoice in being in God's presence this morning. Whether you want to stand and sing, raise your hands in worship, whether you want to stay seated in an attitude of of prayer, just connecting with God in this moment. The communion table is in the back if you want to make that as part of your response this morning to the communion God has offered to you to be in his presence this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for creating us. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for living inside of us. Would you help us to celebrate this morning the freedom we have to dwell in your presence because of what you've done and who you are.